Hey guys, this is Emmett, and I'm here with John. What's up, John? Hey guys, how's it going? And this is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today is exciting. We've got a guest, Alex Hokely, over at the podcast Alpha Bunga Bunga, who has just placed a great article in American Affairs on the Brazilianization of the world. What's up, Alex? Thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. Everything's um, everything's okay. Okay, reasonably okay. Yeah, how's Sao Paulo? How are you guys? I knew yeah. that you were uh, brutally depressed over its state um, not yeah. too long ago. I mean, it is, you know, it is, um, but, you know, the, the human mind finds ways to block things out. And, uh, you know, the death rate isn't at a daily toll of 4,000 per day uh, <sighs> from COVID, obviously, um, not from other things. There's plenty of other ways people die here unnecessarily. But at least, uh, you know, in, in COVID terms, it's gone down to maybe a, an average of like just under 2,000 a day, which is still very high. You, you end up adapting to it, right? So when we were in the depths of it last a year ago, 1,000 sounded like, you know, impossibly high. And now we're at double that. And people are like, well, we have to kind of, Go back to normal and um, yeah. Yeah, it's like at a certain point in the Troubles, they just refer to it as an acceptable level of violence. They're just yeah. like, this is, you know, this is where we are. God, that's the death toll, not just the infection rate. Well, that's the death toll. The, I mean, it's a country of 210 million, but even so, you know. Yeah, that's um, staggering. 2,000 a day is staggeringly high. My God, I'm sorry to hear that. But per your piece, more and more of the world is looking like Brazil, even if we like to tout our allegedly functional infrastructure and political systems and stuff like that. So I just wanted to read a little bit from your piece before we start getting into it, which I think really captures some of the stuff we look at over here. So if you don't mind, I'm going to quote you for a second. The reality is that the 20th century, with its confident state machines forged in war, applying themselves to determine social outcomes, is over. So are its other features, organized political conflict between left and right, or between social democracy and Christian democracy, competition between universalist and secular forces leading to cultural modernization, the integration of the laboring masses into the nation through formal, reasonably paid employment, and rapid and shared growth. I mean, that sounds like every day, right? So I'm sort of curious about how this idea formulated for you over a period of time because i think from listening to the podcast i could catch like glimpses of it and then you guys worked on the book so i'm wondering how long this idea has been with you in terms of capturing how it's not neo-feudalism it's brazilianization yeah so i mean formally i probably started working on it or at least kind of thinking on this and reading around it maybe at the end of 2020, uh, maybe the beginning of this year, something like that. But kind of it's a product of my own encounter with Brazil in in a weird way that obviously, you know, at BungaCast, we're thinking about the ways in which, well, the end of the end of history is ending, but also probably, you know, in in another sense, as your quote there from my article attests to, a ending of the 20th century that so many things that although there's politics seems to have returned um it's returned in such strange forms that it's not like a return to the 20th century model of post-war period um the cold war and all the rest of it that went along with it so there's a longer term sense of decline and decrepitude which isn't just conjunctural i think you know it's something which is more structural 
So obviously, I've been thinking about these various trends and making comparisons and looking at especially anti-politics and anti-corruption, which I think anti-corruption is sort of a, almost a facet of anti-politics, something that I've kind of written a lot about over the past, what is it, four or five years. But, but Brazilianization as a specific concept was something that I came across actually in doing some translation work for, for some Brazilian scholars translating stuff into English. And I think I had come, you know, I'd come across the term before, but never really paid it too much attention because it seemed to me one of those super, superficial comparisons where you're like, oh, there's inequality here, but there's inequality there, or there's, uh, you know, divided cities here, there's divided cities there. And that isn't the type of thing I'm interested in because it seems like a bit of a pick and mix sort of approach to politics. There's no sort of necessary determination behind that. It's just, you know, accidental or superficial. And then you could pick anything else, right? You can go, oh, well, the US is just like Mexico in these regards or the, you know, whatever you want, right? And, and that didn't seem to be very convincing. But, and here I have to really give a huge amount of credit where it's due in terms of inf- not just influence, but but a huge chunk of the essay itself is taken from a previous essay from by Paulo Arantes, who's a Brazilian philosopher, criminally underknown outside of Brazil, but, but whose stuff is really brilliant and uh, you know typically gloomy, typically gloomy sort of stuff. But his 2004 article, it's a long essay, very long essay on the Brazilian fracture of the world. Um, which I don't believe has been ever tried. I'm not sure any of his work has been translated into English, goes through this and starts by looking in the same way that I do, you know, looking at other ways in which this idea of the third worldization of the first world or the, you know, the way that the global north is becoming like the global south has has been kind of discussed by other scholars. And so I cite some of those in the piece, then there's many others. I think there's pl- plenty of like French sociologists who I think have been more attuned to what's going on in Latin America, who have talked about the Latin Americanization of France, for example, looking at what was happening in the French banlieue and seeing in, seeing that as a sort of you know, more developed form perhaps of uh, of Brazilian peripheries or favelas or whatever, right? And so for me, that was just like, wow, this is so brilliant. Um, but I, I still want to write something on this. I feel a little bit sheepish kind of taking the same sort of uh, concept and develop, but, but, you know, and then trying to develop and update it because I think there's other things which aren't discussed in that, which I try to bring to light about recent things, about things that have happened especially since the global financial crisis. So, you know, kind of very much, uh, I guess, bunga territory in terms of the end of the end of history, which I wanted to bring into it. And which I then came together with my, like kind of longstanding preoccupation, something that I've discussed on, on Alpha Bunga Bunga before about the global North becoming like the global South. I mean, that was the term in which I discussed it in, in my own head. Um, and it just seemed kind of obvious that the way that things like something that came much more late, much later than my thinking of it, but something like the storming of the Capitol, um, which seemed like such a, I don't want to overblow it, because of course, I think we're all critical of the idea that it was some fascist coup moment, but it was a sort of disorganization of politics um, and the lack of respect for institutions and so on that is re- pretty commonplace in Brazil, but which there was like, you know, in the US, it was like, wow. And for me, that was like, well, yeah, this is exactly the stuff that that I've been thinking about. So I needed to kind of put pen to paper, I guess, and, and really give it shape. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, totally agree with you on the capital riots. I mean, it's sort of like a two-step that the American government's doing with that, where on the one hand, there's a lot of people in the Justice Department that have similar ideas to what was going on in the Trump Justice Department, and they're really going after certain BLM protesters from the riots this summer. But then expansion of carceral stuff, or however we want to say that, is happening more publicly and being made more acceptable by this specter of fascism. So it's really, you can't really understand either of those things without looking at what's happening on the other end of it. And it's just more state creep 
but it was also weird to just like watch people walk into the state like and also they had no political agenda really you know people like to ascribe things to them but it's not like they issued warrants for all the politicians who fled and read a decree of how the government should be run (laughs) from you know how it is they were just sort of like milling around watching the footage is actually really funny because they're all just like looking at themselves and their cameras with their like the pop-up things on your phone that make it easier to carry. Yeah. It's sort of like negative on both sides. Right. So it's, there's this sort of negativity of the protesters just sort of denouncing or, or being opposed to something vaguely that they have in their minds, but probably isn't even in unison amongst them. Um, and, and even then it's a formalized as a sort of idea behind which they're rallying, you know, what is their flag there? I mean, you can find various kind of, crypto or outright fascist flags and whatever, but there's very other things, right? So it's a big mix. But then there's a negativity on the side of the state as well in terms of allowing these people in, right? Of a certain kind of collapse of authority there. And I'm not arguing that the police should have beaten the crap out of <laughs> all the people storming the the, the 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 thing. But, you know, it's obviously just at a, at a kind of physical security level, entirely defensible right i mean they would have been able to defend the capital and stop people going in if they had wanted to so i think there's a yeah it's the seat of public sovereignty like it yeah probably be defended to some degree exactly Um, yeah yeah but that speaks to something else that's going on in your piece because you guys talked before about neo-feudalism and it comes up in your article that there's this critique a eurocentric right as if the only way to understand any political formations are those that europe has already experienced and B, that it doesn't quite capture some of the realities of what's going on. So I'm wondering if you could recapitulate a little of what makes Brazilianization different from the neo-feudalist argument. Yeah. So, I mean, neo-feudalism sounds quite enticing, doesn't it? I mean, also because it's an attempt to give a name to something that we see around us and which doesn't have a name yet. We can see this sort of decline, collapse, etc. But at the same time, we don't really have a name for it. You know, we talk about post-neoliberalism, but that doesn't really capture it either because that's not that's not even the same thing. But what you do see are these facts. It's like increasing capitalist dependence on the state of uh, accumulation through dispossession, as it's called, you know, of basically in one in some senses creating artificial scarcity through intellectual property or other means. And because of the because of unable to of an inability to go out and set capital in motion in the way that it used to be productively done that you set up a factory and you make stuff and whatever and you're what you're doing is making money not making goods but one of the positive side effects of that is new commodities are, are produced and today they're very cheap to produce and that doesn't bring a lot of value and so capital goes elsewhere to financialization and often is dependent on the state and then there's the other kind of more obvious social features which are you know the kind of gentrification of city cores and the expulsion of poorer people to the outside. Uh, you can think of um, of the, you know, kind of crushing or decline of labor rights. Um, and I mentioned, I think, even the article, uh, Pro- Proposition 22 in California. Um, but, you know, just... Oh, yeah. I live in LA. That was uh, right. enraging to watch happen. Yeah. No, I imagine. I imagine. And and so, the, so the, that's the kind of neo-feudalism idea that we're moving towards a form of capitalism where uh, it I mean, the essence of it is really just that political and economic power become fused, much more fused than before. I mean, when we, I think, you know, Marxists criticize capitalism, they'll say that, you know, actually, there's this economic dynamism at the center of it, but which, you know, relies on the state, right? And and that's often the argument made against the, the, the idea that neoliberalism is 
purely liberal in the sense that it's just laissez-faire. No, it's, the state is very active in creating markets and so on. But this new feudalism idea is a step further, right? It's that the state is increasingly intermeshed with, with the economic power. And uh, you see kind of the kind of sorts of corruption that emerge from that. Well, what is limited about that is that I, I think it's kind of a nonsense to call it feudalism. And even if you attach Neo to it, you know, you're still living in, a, it's still a completely modern economy, um, which doesn't have the same features. You still have formerly free labor, however much there's a um, regression in terms of labor rights and living standards or whatever, you're not going back to kind of people tied to the land. That doesn't make any sense. And, and I, I think even the most catastrophic vision of the future, it doesn't have that. I mean, it's people completely individuated. It's not like kind of communities tied to the to the land where they are. I mean, that's not what we're going back to. So it doesn't, it's not a useful lens. And, and here's the, the kind of Eurocentric part of uh, the of neo-feudalism idea that Basically, the, the things that we're talking about in the West, in the West or the, the global North, whatever, have obtained in the global South for a long time in many countries, which never had the sort of formalization of labor relations that you had in the US and in Western Europe. So it's not a back to the past thing. It's more like, well, it's just this area of the world is now coming to look like a lot of the world has looked like throughout capitalism. Yeah, I sincerely doubt that anyone who said the term neo-feudalism knows anything about feudalism. There's a whole, it's such a problematized concept to begin with that you'll find a lot of people who say there is never any such thing. Some people who say it only existed in France, like, you know what I mean? It's not a ready-made, like, great mental model that's easily applicable to, like, a variety of situations. It's sort of like a very historically contingent way of thinking about Europe that has, it's still heavily, I guess, like contested, we'll say, even to this day. And I I genuinely think that the people who reach for that, not to like criticize them or anything, like I feel like maybe at one time it even appealed to me or something as like an explanatory sort of framework. But I definitely now think like it is, like when we did the, we did an episode talking about the Errol Morris, um, Steve Bannon thing. And then Mike was there with us, one of our friends. And he said, you know, it's just two old guys trading shibboleths. And I was like, you know, I feel like that actually accurately describes so much of like discourse about things today when we're dealing with these abstractions, but they're not even necessarily abstractions that we have like come up with in any way on our own by like, reflecting on things that we see happen in the world they're very received and we're just kind of like told like this is the world you know like this is what's going on it's neo-feudalism bro like that's what's happening out there yeah so rather than actually look at what's happening out there i'm just like oh, okay i already know what's happening out there all reason is this this is axiomatic and like move on straight from this thing that i got from somebody that's pure garbage but like i'm now treating as like the basis for my whole thing about what's wrong with life And I think that to some extent I've engaged in that as much as anyone else. So this isn't like, oh, other people are stupid and I'm smart. It's more of a, like something that I've come to realize more about a lot of my own thinking lately. And just to your point, just to your point about how this is really like not functional, I think as a way of understanding the world. Um, Right. I thought about Eugene Thacker, the American pessimist in his infinite resignations, which is sort of a, probably overlong collection of aphorisms that some are quite insightful. And one of them that I liked was him describing walking into the New York subway with his wife and realizing what a mess it is. And her saying, we live in an undeveloping country. 
Hmm. And I thought that's that good. that's so perfectly captured. Uh, when I read that, this was like a couple years ago, you know, I was tutoring the children of the obscenely wealthy in Los Angeles. And so I would drive around like Venice beach where a homeless encampment like circles the gold's gym that Arnold Schwarzenegger used to work at, you know? And then I would just yeah. like park my car there and then like walk to a mansion, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, I live in an undeveloping country, but it also, especially in California, really the Brazilianization effect is, is very, very palpable. Well, and and there's and for good reason then that one of the one of the people who advanced the neo feudalism idea, Joel Kotkin, writes about California so much and about the Californian oligarchy and about maybe even Californianization. I mean, I don't think he uses that term specifically, but um, it's something that that's kind no, of no. He uses Californication. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Um, but yeah, I think I, I mean, I think the new feudalism thing is it's worth exploring. I mean, maybe it's a useful heuristic or whatever. And the reason why I don't immediately reject it is because there's really smart people who who are maybe hinting at that or toying with that idea. I mean, Robert Brenner has kind mm -hmm. of hinted at that. And he's the guy who, you know, he's the guy about the transition from feudalism to capitalism. So I think if anybody would know something about the transition from capitalism to something else, which may be or may not be kind of similar to feudalism, he would be the guy. So I think it's worth exploring. But I think it also, I mean, exactly what John said, it's one of those things that you end up hanging your hat on, and then you don't have to really think anymore. And it's just something that you just plaster on. And it's a bit like the way that neoliberal has become where everything's just, oh, well, that's neoliberal. And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, it's another case where I think if you, if you can substitute capitalism for neoliberalism, you should do that. You know, like so many of the things that you talk about, that people talk about under the terms of neoliberalism about growing atomization or individualization or, you know, various different things. We're like, well, that's a kind of tendency that's existed across capitalism. And the only reason that neoliberalism seems like a different thing that needs its own term is because we are taking the period from 1945 to 1973 as the default of how things should be rather than seeing that age as an exception. Right. And I mean, also... We talked with the scholar Kyung Min Sun about his book, Eclipse of the Demos, which challenges the very like 1970s are the moment this all changes thing and points to a sort of broader arc of anti-democratic, quote unquote, neoliberal thinking that begins even in the 30s and really gains yeah. maybe gains its full head of steam in the 70s. But I think when we talked to him and viewed it like that, it really started to change the way in which we understood the 20th century and just how entrenched things feel now. Right. And one of the things that feels entrenched that I think it's hinted at in your article that I think is part of why people find the phrase neo-feudalism powerful, at least is that there is no longer this assumption of like bourgeois assumption of basic equality in fact, there are just different versions of an assumption of inequality that feel very much like older aristocratic thinking. Yeah, no, exactly. It's no longer just that there's really existing e economic inequality, but which is disguised to a certain extent by political equality. I mean, not to say that that political equality is completely a, a mirage. I mean, it's it's real, right? I mean, those are rights that have been gained through struggle. So it's not just something to be dismissed. It's not just some kind of superstructure, which is not, you know, kind of um, whatever, which is some mystification of what's really going on. Um, I think that'd be like the really vulgar Marxist way of talking about it. But never, but you know, so those are real gains. But the, the, the fact is, is that those gains are being lost. So it's not just 
uh, you know, that you can point to growing economic inequality and say, yes, but, you know, people are still citizens, they're, you know, endowed with rights and that they're treated as equals in public. Increasingly, that seems not to be the case uh, in, in the North. But again, I mean, that's where the Brazilianization thing comes in, where uh, Brazil also has had, you know, formal uh, formal equality. But the reality of it, um, just in terms of even even when you've had laws which stipulate some form of, you know, formal equality, the treatment, the actual treatment by the state hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't uh, held up to that. I think we definitely poorly understand Central and South America here in the old North. Like, I've only recently in the last few years read anything, you know, about let's say like the 18th century in Paraguay or something. It's like the stuff that was going on and the way that it colonialism operated there with Spain, just things of that nature, like the very historically and locally contingent particularities of these places. I think much like the rest of the world, we're kind of like, I don't know. And I don't care, like <laughs> whatever, man. But it was really interesting to see a lot of um, things that I had noticed about other countries I had read about kind of showing up in the Brazilianization article about the way in which there are like social arrangements, which aren't exactly like, you know, the French Republic or anything like yeah. that. And then you're grafting on these other kind of economic relationships and then it's getting incorporated into the global trade, like network and kind of thing. And I mean, it's all like a very strange and dynamic and like complicated process that I think in some ways really defies a lot of oversimplification, which is a lot of what I got out of really once you'd start digging into it just really fascinating. But I think just to kind of put it out there, I think we're typically pretty ignorant of those particularities here in this country. If I can draw one particularity, if I'm not going too deep into Latin America here, um, is that I, there's a difference to be drawn, a distinction to be drawn between Brazil and uh, various Latin American republics, because, uh, you know, unlike, say, Venezuela or Colombia or wherever, let alone Argentina, which actually was part of the first world, is one of the richest countries in the world at a certain point in time. Um, you know, Brazil has this really particular history of, as I say in the piece, born modern in terms of being immediately interlinked to uh, colonialism and, and extraction of value and so on. So it's not just uh, an old traditional society, which then has an encounter with Western capitalist modernity, right? It always was that. I mean, you know, if you leave aside kind of indigenous civilizations, which were less developed anyway than something like the, yeah. the Incas or the Aztecs, right? It, what's different is that, you know, those other countries had a revolutionary history. Those other countries, meaning the kind of Latin American republics, had a revolutionary history, had a real break with, with, the, with the past, with the colonial past. And so that has a certain legacy, a, you know, an appeal to the republic. And it, of course, however, however hypocritical it was, and probably more hypocritical than uh, even French appeals to, to republicanism were. But Brazil doesn't have this, because Brazil, you have this, if one slavery continues longer than at any point, any other country in the Western Hemisphere, you have the seat of the empire being moved to Brazil, out of the metropole into the colony. And so, you know, just for as an example, and then you have this transition to a republic, but where basically the same heads remain. And it's, uh, you know, so it, you basically don't have, you have this irresolution, I guess, as I call it, or indeterminacy, where you don't have these clean breaks where uh, other Latin American countries did, which is why I say Brazilianization, why I think that lens makes more sense than saying Colombianization or Mexicanization or whatever, because Mexico has, you know, this revolutionary history. 
Yeah, exactly. Interestingly, the first time this stuff started to dawn on me, which was uh, what I liked about your article, is that I felt like it captured several things I'd noticed but hadn't quite been able to uh, put words to, which uh, you did quite well, was the time I spent living in New Mexico, which is like very obviously an old holding of the Spanish Empire. <laughs> and my roommate there, one of my roommates, was from Bogota. And I had another friend who was from Peru. And they were both like, you have no idea how Latin America this part of America is. They were like, the elites don't want to develop. (laughs) They're fine (laughs) with the situation that they have. Like they've been in power for hundreds of years and everything is just good enough. You know, like the infrastructure is like, (laughs) you know, still like kind of like dirt roads everywhere. Very crazy. And that elites are the bourgeois or elites, whoever don't want to develop or don't want to continue this process is something that I saw first in America, New Mexico, and now in California, I see, or it's like actively destructive, like the way the California grid gets handled, which is like total like environmentalists who have no engineering discipline or like (laughs) anything like that feel like they can just do whatever they want and it, the results don't matter. You know, Texas is the same way. And that you see elites actively destroying the infrastructure that has made their ascension possible because it benefits their immediate financial interests. It's yeah. a wild dereliction of duty. Yeah. And I, I guess, I mean, I, so I'm, I'm always like reluctant to that or my instinct is to be moralistic like that, you know, to kind of castigate elites for for being self-undermining and whatever. Um, and then you kind of, you know, you go, no, you should step back and actually look at this, look at the reasons why this is, because just moral hectoring isn't, you know, isn't sufficient. Um, and I think, but I think, you know, when you when you actually do that, you can see material reasons why that has come about. I mean, you can trace the history and the genealogy and everything as totally. to why why they why elites have become incre- increasingly short-termist and not just short-termist because i think that obviously makes you look at kind of finance or whatever and rather than having longer-term development plans but that doesn't uh entirely speak to the process of destructiveness that you've just spoken about right of active uh active undermining um but that's but that's a real thing that's a real thing and it's a it's a product of a certain i guess structure of structuring of society that's emerged um, where they can withdraw into private spaces. So, you know, you don't need to worry about the roads being bad because you might have a helicopter which can fly over them and you can have your private estate, which is well run and uh, adequately served by, you know, domestic laborers and whatever. So, yeah, totally. I mean, I worked at a bookstore and Donald Rumsfeld's kids would come in all the time. And I was like, yeah, they like ultra do not give a fuck. Like whether Santa Fe is like a functioning, well-taxed yeah. thing at all. They went into a bookstore, which which I guess is is something, you know. Like, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, at least there's that. Yeah, I mean, there's one phrase I loved in this piece and I was wondering if you could explain it. I mean, I love idioms. They're like my fa- like some of my favorite things, but it all ends in pizza is outstanding (laughs) so i was wondering if you could explain that for our listeners a little bit yeah it's a great it's a great brazilian phrase which has been used a lot actually over the past 
you know, uh, eight years. And I can explain why maybe at the end, why, why that is, why it's been so used. But I mean, the, the origin of the idiom comes from a meeting of the directors of Palmeiras football club here in Sao Paulo, which is like one of the, one of the, one of the big four of Sao Paulo state. And it's a traditionally, uh, Italian club, like of Italian immigrants. Uh, it used to be called Palestra Italia rather than uh, Palmeiras. They changed their name during the second world war because, um, well, you can you can figure out why. Yeah, the <laughs> um, dots. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there was actually kind of I think Mussolini was slated to come visit and give a speech from the town hall of São Paulo, uh, which was which is kind of a fascist building. I mean, it's fascist architecture, and there's a little um, balcony built for Mussolini to come give a speech to the Italian community here. I think he never ended up coming. But anyway, um, just a little bit of random trivia there. Um, but anyway, so this so this Italian club, they, they had a big meeting, they had a big row, they couldn't come to any solution. It's this endless meeting, carry on for hours and hours and hours. And they decide to order in pizza and wine and beer. Uh, and after much uh, imbibing and eating and whatever, uh, they just came to some big messy compromise, which doesn't really satisfy anyone entirely, but stops any antagonism. So things just kind of get smoothed over, or maybe the can gets kicked down the road. But in one way or another, the immediate antagonism is is bridged by, by um yeah, by, by some sort of accord, which uh, which doesn't which is not a definitive yes or no. It's just a sort of yes, yeah, sort of maybe, and let's let's see about it later. Um, and so it all ended in pizza. It all ended, you know, the the, <laughs> the conflicts ended in pizza, um, and that's something which I think is a great way to sum up this sense of irresolution. And it's something that has emerged. I mean, it's been endlessly repeated in Brazil over the past couple of years because you had this huge anti-corruption wave, which is very ambiguous which ended up becoming very right wing, but which proposed, at least if you take them on their word, to clean up Brazil. And many of the kind of, let's say, upper middle class liberal, let's at least to try to be generous to a certain section of that anti-corruption movement, genuinely wanted to clean up politics. Okay, it did not present a different social vision. It didn't really have anything to say about inequality, but at least wanted to make the state more efficient. Uh, You know, and that goes from everything from... uh, you know, sort of clientelistic relations to politicians who are not responsive uh, to uh, policymaking, which might be even more long range, might be able to undertake development, probably still under a neoliberal guise, but nevertheless, right? So that they're trying to kind of clean things up, which, you know, if, if, if that were possible, um, you'd say, well, that's still an improvement. It's a, it's a rationalization of the state. I think even someone like Perry Anderson in his book on Brazil is kind of initially... Um, initially lauding that sort of approach because it was, he saw it as the bourgeoisie cleaning up its own mess, which, you know, the, the Brazilian bourgeoisie hasn't ever really done that. And so that would be quite, that would be a sort of step forward, even if it wouldn't mark any real advance for the working class, it would be a rationalization of the state. Um, but there was always the worry that it would end in pizza. And, and so it did. Um, and uh, probably worse than pizza because it wasn't just a model, but it ended up leading Bolsonaro to power. And Bolsonaro now is in power uh, or is really in the pocket of exactly those old clientelistic elites. So not even the, the kind of new shiny financial elites mainly based in Sao Paulo, but the kind of old maybe elites from the interior, the ones most uh, addicted to pork barrel spending and so on. So you have this, you, you've ended up at a place which is worse even than the status quo ante. Do you think that the anti-corruption thing had some essence of just like, a political faction strife. That's kind of, I tend to assume that that's what's going on when an anti-corruption purge happens somewhere in the world. Yeah. Is that the corrupt people were the people who lost the upper hand in like an intra 
like political class struggle sort of yeah i mean sort of what you basically had was an alliance between uh, the workers party and its allies and its allies weren't of any ideological stripe similar to the workers party many many of these are just for higher parties but you have to cobble together these massive coalitions of of for higher parties and uh they had a sort of an alliance with the national bourgeoisie especially the massive construction companies who you know have holdings and activities across latin america uh and that nexus was what and there were, i mean huge funds channeled out of the state petroleum company and through these through these construction companies uh which went into electoral coffers i mean i think the workers party themselves the leading members didn't in, seek to enrich themselves but it was a way to perpetuate themselves and empower them and their allies but i mean you know it was like basically across the across the board and we only know about it because it was investigated there may have been similar levels of uh you know some similar kind of graft scandals before but we didn't know about them um but also maybe it was bigger in in absolute terms because of the commodities boom and uh the price of oil at that time and so on anyway leaving the the kind of details of that aside um the anti corruption investigation so just purely looking at that activist crusading section of the judiciary which carried out the lavajato investigations as they were called the car wash investigations uh they were attacking that nexus so it was kind of in in favor of the financial neoliberal elite in as against the sort of uh, internal or national bourgeoisie so there was definitely a factional struggle there absolutely what made it different was that it had mass support i mean so it was only those who were directly associated with the left who didn't like it i mean that that means both intellectuals and and workers and middle class as well um but that was maybe i don't know maybe 30% of the population maybe less um so the workers party lost a huge amount of support and the i mean as i've, I've written about this before but you know anti corruption plays in different ways for different sections of society for different strata of society um so maybe for the big bourgeoisie it's a way of um you know seeing through their factional struggle but if you're like a small businessman it's a way of um seeing the big bourgeoisie who are corrupt and in politicians pockets get their come up ins because you don't have that sort of access as a small businessman um and for a worker it might just be like well hey these are the elite getting taken away in handcuffs and i don't care if they're left wing politicians supposedly uh working in our interests or if they're right wing politicians or if they're businessmen I don't care who they are you know they're these are the this is just the elite as a whole uh who are getting their come up ins and so I'm not entirely dismissive of it just as a factional struggle precisely because it had such widespread popular support or at least you know mass support amongst the working class uh who saw it as a and and in many cases continue to see it um or in in so far as they continue to support an idea of anti corruption investigations as a way of punishing elites because and I have a of a good friend Matthew Richmond who's done some empirical work um ethnography and so on uh looking at this stuff and it's quite interesting because a lot of workers in poor neighborhoods in the periphery of Sao Paulo will still hold to this idea because for them the reason that things are bad the reason why public services are underfunded uh the reason you know and so on basically the the sort of state of of inequality is a product of politicians who steal that's obviously a kind of very kind of crude conception i guess of how things work but you know there's a there's a truth to that and so therefore they they supported the anti-corruption investigations yeah it reminds me of how um appealing to so many people trump strain the swamp thing was and then of course he like in the way that dick cheney ran bush w, like w bush's presidency like jared kushner ran trump's presidency 
And yeah. then the, his family is like a huge DNC. We've said this like a million times on the podcast, but like contrasting that with the relief of um, Trump just straight up saying like, uh, when you, uh, when I pay it so that when I call, they pick up the phone and they pick up the phone or <laughs> uh, the Iraq war was stupid and we shouldn't have done it. It was a bad deal then and it's a bad deal now or whatever. Um, and people still really, even if it was all like this con or whatever, there was such great relief at someone just sort of pointing out the obvious. However, yeah. like uncomplicated or unnuanced or imprecise that analysis was, I think at some point it put everybody in a place where they had to admit that like, yeah, offshoring as a Cold War strategy um, and a way to cripple labor uh, really sucked for America's workers and for its sovereignty, as we learned yeah. <laughs> during Corona, um, yeah. you know, is that these weren't, um, these weren't good long-term strategies. They were bad deals actually, <laughs> you know, so it makes sense that people still hold on to that. And I don't know how it is in Brazil, but the left in America has, I mean, first of all, you have the DSA, which is never going to be anything other than an avant-garde HR policy generator for the DNC and various NGOs, because its tax status means that it can't run its own candidates. So the left seems totally captured by these things and can not really offer a compelling narrative to workers outside of it in a large degree. Is that true for the Brazilian yeah. left or how does it look over there? Yeah, I think so. There's been a process. I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying about the US and, you know, Trump was the only guy saying the emperor has no clothes. And I think it uh, shows how much the left is wedded to institutionality that it was unable to denounce them. You know, the, the left can denounce billionaires uh, and can denounce the economic elite, but it won't really denounce politics or politicians they want to denounce a political establishment or even and for that matter you know the media and other organizations for which is kind of funny because the left used to be all kind of like oh the media is lying to you and whatever um which is you know crude and problematic and whatever but now it's kind of like no the we need we need a media we can trust and so on you know which yeah, bring um, in the information cool. supervisors man like well exactly yeah yeah so i mean that's definitely the case and you know Trump uh, stole the left's thunder or what should have been the left's thunder, I guess, um, in, in kind of denouncing corruption in the way that he did. Um, in Brazil, the institutionalization of the left has also happened. I mean, the Workers' Party was the last great mass social democratic party in the world ever created. And it's kind of a, a remarkable thing that it was. I mean, you know, we can criticize its limitations, but in the, in the context of the very, very late Cold War and redemocratization, what it was able to assemble in terms of an alliance between the industrial workers, some sections of the poor, certainly at least the organized section in terms of landless workers movements and whatever, intellectuals, uh, the kind of left wing of the Catholic church was a remarkable sort of construction uh, and was something that could have led to a modernization of Brazil. Um, what ended up happening as they took power, I mean, I think already before they came to power in, 2000, in the 2002 election, was that they'd already moderated and there's a famous letter to the Brazilian people that Lula wrote in 2002. Um, and, you know, people joke about it. It's not letter to the Brazilian people. It's letter to the Brazilian elite saying, we're going to play nice. Don't worry. Um, and so they may, they maintain the same sort of macroeconomic management of the economy in broad sense as uh, the previous neoliberal government. And what ended up happening was that trade union leaders became 
inserted into the state. So they became often pension managers within the state. Uh, and they took up all these um, all these public sector jobs. And of course, the right, when it ended up having this huge backlash as of 2014 onwards against the PT, waving the banner of anti-corruption, they would allege that, you know, the left or the PT has completely instrumentalized the state. They're taking over the state. They're doing something like Venezuela. No, I mean, it was what PT was doing was just kind of counterbalancing against what <laughs> against what the right had always done. So it was just making the state maybe, you know, the composition of the personnel of the state um, made up of like slightly better people, I guess, than would have been before. So I don't think there's any basis to the right wing critique, but of course it's disastrous for the left because it led to a demobilization uh, of uh, of the Workers Party, which actually was a was a genuine mass party. Yeah, we and- have we we really just don't have real parties here. Whenever I hear about another country's party structure, I'm just like, wow, y'all actually participate in things. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, the U.S. the two cartel parties. You know, I think what's the um, there's a great quote about you know the the, the the U.S. is a one-party state, but with typical American exuberance, it has two of them, yeah. um, which was uh, Julius Nyerere, I think the president of Tanzania, the kind of post-independence uh, politician who, yeah, who said great. that. And I think that's a great quote. That's great. So I, I have a question now about like the idea of the end of the end of history. It's something that I have, you know, I look forward to the book because I feel like I'll get even more answers about it. But um, it's something I've puzzled over in listening to Alpha Bunga Bunga and in reading this piece. So my understanding is you're pulling from Francis Fukuyama um, and Kojev when you talk about that, in other words, or his interpretation of Kojev, I should be more precise, in that there are no great ideological struggles anymore. And what we're really doing is fine tuning what the world has agreed on as the best social formation, right? And that is capitalist liberal democracy. So what does the end of the end of history mean in that context? Because my first instinct is that, oh, does this mean that there's a new big ideological contention a la the Cold War or is it something else? Yeah. So, I mean, you have the big Hegelian sense of the end of history, um, which I think if we're going to go into it, you know, Kojev maybe presents a misreading of uh, of Hegel, and um, I'm not a Hegel expert, so I'm not speaking kind of directly. But I think um, Todd McGowan, someone who we've kind of had on the podcast before, presents a great reinterpretation of Hegel. In fact, it's kind of a an a easier to read version of Zizek, actually, um, and so it's quite good for that. Um, but you know that the, the the misreading was at the end of he- that there effectively that Hegel says that there can't really be an end of history. Uh, in this, because after the French Revolution, the spirit of freedom has been unleashed, and so that any social formation will not be totally stable; that it'll become consolidated and decrepit, and so on, and so and new forces will emerge. And so this is modernity now, right? Um, nothing's going to settle in to an ancien regime, you know, in the way that the ancien regime was. And so that obviously, so we're kind of critical of that notion of of the end of history. But then taking it kind of on its word, as it were, right? So looking at Fukuyama's presentation of this idea that liberal democracy is the final form of human government, I think then we can break it down and look at, okay, what are the specific determinate features of the end of history? So we can ask ourselves the question, is the end of history over? 
Um, so if you want to go through these, I mean, I, I've got like kind of five things, right? So one is globalization. And I think it's self-evident what that means. Um, ever increasing trade, decreasing trade barriers, increasing cultural intercourse between countries, uh, maybe the decline in effective sovereignty that that might entail, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You have horizontalization of firms, I think is exactly. a huge part of that. Yeah. 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 So, you know, okay. So we know what that is. Uh, and we can probably say, if we want to go through the list and kind of check them all, go, well, then we're going through deglobalization. I mean, the, the era of high globalization is definitely over. There's obviously still a lot of interlinking, but, you know, I think post-pandemic, there's lots of reshoring of supply chains and so on. Globalism would be the second one, which would be the ideological uh, correlate to globalization. So it's the idea of liberal democracy becoming the default around the world. The countries where you don't have liberal democracy uh, let's just take George W. Bush's axis of evil as, as an example. Uh, those countries are maybe just laggards who might need to be bombed into it. Um, or maybe we can just forget about them because they're the exceptions. But everyone else is going to become a liberal democracy. And I think if we look around the world to take two big examples, China, uh, not China, actually China as well, but that's not the example I was going to say, um, India or uh, Turkey, you know, they're turning to kind of ethnic based authoritarian populism, which goes completely against the idea that there's going to be convergence with the West. And so the whole liberal democracy mongering that went along with the end of history is now over as well. Like no one, I don't know, like U.S. politicians, maybe there's still a couple there, but, you know, they're not really doing this kind of like everyone's going to become a liberal, liberal democracy. We're only going to trade with you if you're like liberal and so on. The EU still tries to do it with regard to Hungary and Poland, but, you know, completely ineffectively. And so that whole ideological kind of package is gone too. So that's, that's two of them. The third one is neoliberalism. And I think, you know, we can see the world moving beyond neoliberalism. You can look at what Joe Biden's doing, however inadequately or insufficiently, you know, turn back towards state spending, uh, a pursuit of political goals rather than being always beholden to certain economic rules that can't be broken. Um, so greater kind of political interference in the economy. Um, so that's kind of going too. Uh, so we're nearly there. Then you have post-politics, I guess the fourth element. Post-politics is the foreclosure of political contestation, right? Politics being, in essence, dissensus, the disagreement over the shape of society and contestation over the way things run. So politics isn't just the day-to-day administration of the affairs of the state. In fact, I would say it's the opposite. That is not politics. Politics is precisely when there's put when the, the, the way things are run is put into question and post politics was the period you know of of the end of history when everything was consensus and anything that broke with consensus was excluded as some backwards atavistic thing you know it was probably racist or sexist or whatever um and key area key areas of policy making are excluded from public contestation you know central bank independence key thing most like classic example, but there's many, many others. The outsourcing to quangos, uh, the outsourcing of decision-making to supranational bodies, to the EU, if, it's, if you're in Europe, all different forms of post-politics. I think that's now been brought into question. I mean, we were just talking about Trump, you know, saying, uh, you know, basically we don't want this shit anymore. Uh, the, these people are all corrupt. Um, we're going to say the emperor has no clothes. Trump is an agent, was an agent of repoliticization. However, inadequate and imperfect, uh, it was, it was uh, repoliticizing. And, you know, you could say even Marine Le Pen in France, same thing as well. Um, you know, the left might not like it, <laughs> but that's, that is the truth, yeah, right? That's where the energy is. 
That's where the energy is, right? And they're not able to build anything stable either. They're not, you know, it's just these populist eruptions which don't lead anywhere. Or if they do gain power, they become part of the establishment, like, like what's happened in Italy with both Lega and Five Star. Um, but nevertheless, they they are agents of repoliticization. So post politics is gone. So that's four elements of the end of history which are now gone. There's one more, and that is capitalist realism. Mark Fisher's term, of course, for not just the the idea that there's no alternative, but the inability to con- even conceive of other alternatives. And that one I'm not so sure on. That, which is probably speaks to the greatest capital H sense of history, um, isn't there. And so what we're left with is a undoing of the old order, but without any new force emerging, which is able to confidently challenge it or speak in the name of a certain idea, of an idea of what the the next stage of history will be. Or even the, not even the next age of history, but even the next age of capitalism. <laughs> There's no one really advocating for that. So that's so that's the so that's the sense. If we've got it, we so we're left with an end of the end of history. We're not saying history is restarting. We're just saying that the period of the end of history has ended, and we're uh, in this interregnum, or what you hope is an interregnum, <laughs> and not that this is going to be the, our, our our state for the next hundred years. There's like a, a recent pretty funny Zizek interview where he, I guess he's talking about one of his newer books about Hegel. And he says, um, you know, Hegel was not a stupid guy. He was a thinker of um, catastrophe. And in the sense of like, you know, I guess basically going against what I guess the interviewer thought was orthodox Hegelianism, which was like resolution, resolution, resolution. Yeah. He was like, no, Hegel saw that in fact, there will always must necessarily be a catastrophe, no matter what you do, like you will always meet with catastrophe. And yeah. and that's really Hegel. And I can't speak to the correctness or not of that, but it was very entertaining. Oh, he also, also quite pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, talked about why is Trump a fetish for us? And I don't know if you've heard this one, but he says for Freud, the fetish, and please excuse like it's problematic but whatever we have to talk about it the fetish is the last thing you see before you see the girl with no clothes and see that there's no penis the last thing you see before that and so i claim that trump was the very last thing we saw before we saw class war reappear (laughs) and trump is the fetish and i yeah it's it feels i mean that's totally it like in a way Mm -hmm. trump was he was not class warfare, but he was the very like, he was some kind of like weird manifestation of all these libidinal discontents and like conflicts going on with us. Because I think we talk about a lot of things on that level today, both in Brazil and here, like the way in which there are things going on governmentally or policy wise or whatever, like movements of elites. But then there are also like these very large like public opinion reactions to them or like we have like you know like generalizable sort of ideas about how the public feels about things or whatever which is all kind of interestingly being created by our reaction to what we see happening and it's in conversation with like the media apparatus at least here i don't know a lot about how that might function in brazil but it always is very interesting to see the ways in which like media is like a I don't even know like a sieve a lens like things go through it and they come out a different way and like 
you know, people end up deranged in all these various ways. Like he will not, uh, what is it? He will not divide us. us. Yeah, he will yeah. not divide us. Yeah. Like, you know, like my God, like <laughs> what happened? Yeah. No, Are you possessed totally, totally by a hyper demon? Real, right? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, no. divorce, but, but nevertheless, I mean, I think, and you're right on like what you're pointing to is that it's anger. Anger is back. And that sounds like a really simplistic way to put it <laughs> just to talk about kind of affect or emotions. But I mean, we, we kind of do this in the book and we have some tables. Um, people like tables. George loves tables. George is responsible for the tables, but it was, it was a, it's definitely a good addition. Uh, to if the I had book. to put my money on who was going to be the tables guy, it was going to be George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's George, but no, they're, they're great because like, just in terms of identifying what has changed between the end of history and the end of end of history. And if the end of history's main affect was apathy, what you have now is anger and anger is back and it's back in the public realm. And as much as uh, the kind of liberal establishment has tried to keep a lid on that and to clamp it down uh, and has had hysterical reactions because it's unable to do so, right? This is neoliberal order breakdown yeah. syndrome or knobs. Or it's um, even tried to valorize other types of anger to right. legitimize itself. You know, like I of course believe in police reform and things like that, but I can't imagine it's lo- a good long-term trend to have a bunch of democratic mayors in lockstep say, it's okay if you do whatever the hell you want within our city limits. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, Oh, that's not but- an effective strategy over time. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. So even they have had to succumb to, anger or to use mm-hmm. anger that they can't no longer pursue a kind of discourse of consensus. No, everyone's peaceful. We all, we're all working in the interests of everyone, you know, all this kind of nonsense, um, cross partisan, whatever, cross mm-hmm. hands across the aisle, whatever, as you, yeah, yeah. The, you guys in the U S put it. Um, so then, you know, <laughs> yeah, whatever <laughs> bullshit we're getting up to. <laughs> well, no, it's just, you know, we have different idioms for different things, you know, yeah. hands across the aisle or whatever, hands across America, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that, anyway, that doesn't fly anymore so everybody needs to be angry now and that's completely channeled as you're saying john kind of into culture wars through the media but that still marks a a real break with uh, the end of history mm. i would only so i agree with the, the the five points those would be the the things that i would want to look at right and i agree about the we haven't seen the end of capitalist realism that feels true. I feel like we've seen the end of liberalism, frankly. I'm willing to go on record and say that, that not just yeah. structurally within the, the frame of the juridical, but also culturally, the turn away from basic bourgeois equality at a deep, entrenched, assumptive cultural level means that that project is more or less dead in the water. Yeah. But what I would want to like push back a little bit on is the whether or not we've seen the end of neoliberalism. And I think that it's correct to say, maybe it's just on its way out, but within the US, I'm not totally totally there yet. Because when I look at the details within the Biden spending stuff, a lot of it is very much the same incentivizing neoliberal entrepreneur brain ideas about how to go about running a state. So it's not necessarily that we're going to spend a ton of money on state infrastructure or whatever. It's like, okay, well, we are, but they're going to be these competing bidding systems. And, you know, part of that's just path dependency for 
how the U.S. firm differentiated itself from its relationship to the state compared to like the U.K. or Germany in the late 19th century. I think it goes back that far. Um, so that's just kind of how America sees things. Yeah. Um, but that's one area. And I also think that it, we should be reshoring. Whether or not we will is another question. We might be dealing with zombie globalization for a while because pulling away from Beijing for the U.S., it's going to be incredibly fucking painful and require, you know, I know we don't like the Hector, uh, um, but uh, would require, frankly, a level of moral courage on behalf of its politicians mm -hmm. that I don't know if it's capable of producing <laughs> its elites yeah. anymore. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, you're right to push back on it because it's not clear cut. Um, and I think also because we don't know what post neoliberalism would look like, which is a terrible construction to stick post and then neo right, liberalism. Right. But, but you know, we can keep it for now. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, we don't know what's coming after. And so the only thing we have to compare with is kind of pre neoliberalism or, you know, kind of Fordist Keynesianism. And so go, well, okay, are things looking more like they looked in the 1960s now? And you go, well, no, not really. So, so it's, it's hard to really, I guess, set benchmarks of what moving out of neoliberalism would look like. What I would say as a starter is that the political authority of neoliberalism has ended. So I don't think there's any rhetorical justifications or legitimations on the basis of neoliberalism or ever expanding competition or inserting markets into things. I think you still see that going on. And I think especially big tech is a, is a major kind of at the vanguard of that. But I don't think at the same time that at, in kind of public discourse and public debate that that holds water anymore. I mean, if I look at Britain, it's, you know, that's, that's flown out of the window and you're, there's a turn towards a protective state, probably more than the kind of neoliberal state. So it's more kind of let's guard sovereignty. Let's protect you mm. from immigrants. Let's, uh, let's protect you from COVID. Um, so the state is more responsible for pursuing social outcomes. Um, but as to the kind of material reality, I think, yeah, you're right. I think there's still a lot of neoliberalism there. And I think we can look at the kind of cash transfers as a good example of that, where there's not a sense. So, you know, maybe people will go, hey, we're getting free money. This is a lot better than neoliberal austerity. But at the same time, it's important not to reduce neoliberalism just to austerity. I mean, yeah, that's a catastrophic mistake of, it, of but, the left, honestly, yeah. is, to, is to really identify neoliberalism with austerity. And kind of amazing that that continued to happen when even just culturally UBI was something that started to gain legitimacy and be offered on the table while a bunch of these background structures Hayek haven't changed as UBI. much. What? Hayek suggested UBI as a means of maintaining <laughs> yeah. personal liberty in the face of yeah. being like, if your employer controls your total subsistence, then how are you free? So mm -hmm. Hayek suggested some kind of baseline um, like cash, you know, fund for everybody so they could be genuinely free to mm -hmm. like choose employment and things like that. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you're, you're basically given some money to play in the market. I mean, play, I use that kind of ironically because of course it's, you know, bare subsistence and, uh, and mm -hmm. it doesn't give you that much to play with unless you're already, you know, reasonably well off and middle-class and then you can use your whatever $1,400 to save or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, by GameStop. But the point is that you're, yeah, exactly. But the, the point is that you're out there being able to play in the market where that, rather than having kind of new public services. So I think that's right. On the other hand, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of tangling myself in knots, but I think th there's something important going on there, which needs exploring, not necessarily in terms of, is it neoliberal or not, but that there's a sort of 
lack of intermediation there where you're kind of no longer wedded to the labor market necessarily because you might have fallen out of the labor market entirely, maybe eking out a living, you know, kind of as a, as a self-employed worker. Um, and therefore you're kind of dependent purely on the state and you no longer have leverage over your employer that a kind of wage might guarantee or might at least provide in some way. So there's something interesting happening there. But again, as I say, that doesn't necessarily answer the question of neoliberal or, or not. Right. Maybe after hearing you talk, I put, I put it like this, like, I mean, I think one of the terms that I wish I would see pop up on the left a little bit more is one that I see like on the right, especially with like econ dudes or whatever. It, and it's just path dependency. In other words, we've gotten really good at like states learn, right? So they learn how to do something. Uh, usually it's painful when they make mistakes and it takes forever to reorient, you know, because they're large hulking institutions. Some states may be more nimble or have more energy to be able to accommodate the world changing around them, right? But I hear what you're saying and agree, at least about the legitimation of neoliberalism. And maybe that that is where I would see the end of the end of history, even if some of the structures are still there, because I don't think anybody would really buy somebody being like, well, we'll just turn it into a market anymore. I think that that nobody finds that appealing. I think everybody's living with the results of some of that stuff. But it's also that we don't know what else to do because we have that level of path dependency. Yeah. Right. Where it's just, and there's no other ideological contending sphere. As you said, it's, we haven't reached the end of capitalist realism. So that that's really what the end of the end of history feels like. It's being sort of strapped into path dependency with no off ramp while you're watching it fail in front of you. Yeah, which is, the, which is the sense of drift that I mean, I also talk about in the Brazilianization piece that we're just this feeling of being stuck because there isn't a new body of economists or whatever other thinkers who are proposing a new idea of how to go about things. I mean, you have some kind of corrections to it. So you think of like the success that the economist Mariana Mazzucato has had in who, you know, who points out that so many things that we think are products of the free market, like take the iPhone, so many of its components were created by the state, were state-funded research, was state-funded, uh, or, you know, the, the U.S. military coming up with uh, the internet, basically. And so pointing these things out, so pointing out that the state has a real role in supporting the market, not just in sort of creating new markets, but actual, you know, through funding and so on. But yeah, that's not exactly pointing a path beyond. It's really a kind of a, a correction to neoliberalism and going, well, maybe the state should take a more active role. Do you end up in a place then that's not neoliberal? Probably, probably because we need a new term for it. But I mean, what does that mean? Like, are we are we interested ultimately in, in coming up with new terms so that we know what we're talking about? Do we need the, the best new... name? Is this a platonic yeah, exactly. dialogue? We're back to the neo-feudalism thing. Like, okay, cool. You got this new term for it. And like, cool, we can all go home now. I mean, that doesn't, you know, yeah. that doesn't resolve anything. No, absolutely. I think that's right. But yeah, I mean, well, all this is telling me is that we'll have to have you back on to talk about the book and, and go, yeah, we'd love to have you again. I think that this really points to why nothing feels possible uh, in a major theme, especially with Brazilianization. So I think we'll leave it here and keep some in the gas tank for next time. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Brilliant. It was a a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks guys. Okay, everybody. Stay safe out there.